You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 73, The Blood of a King. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway, we left off last time with the failure of the Peace of Amiens. Perhaps it would be more accurate to call it the Truce of Amiens, since the agreement lasted just 14 months. Britain and France will be at war for the rest of our story. As I hope I was able to get across, the Treaty of Amiens was a strange occurrence, a rare confluence of events that created an opportunity for peace without victory, to borrow a phrase. Fortunately for the people of both countries, their leaders did the right thing and seized the chance when it appeared, knowing full well it would likely prove temporary. The Treaty of Amiens is one of the great what-ifs of the Napoleonic era, How might history have unfolded differently if Bonaparte had more than 14 months of peace to cement his regime and carry out his domestic reform agenda? Could humanity have been spared over a decade of struggle and bloodshed? What would Europe look like today if the Napoleonic project was restricted to the borders of France? Could Napoleon have stayed in power? Would some member of the Bonaparte family reign as emperor in Paris today? It's tantalizing to imagine that such a vastly different world might have been possible. It's often speculated that this may have come to pass if only Napoleon had agreed to negotiate a commercial treaty, which would have fostered trade between Britain and French-controlled Europe. It's easy to see the logic here. A commercial treaty would have created a constituency of people who profited from peace, and presumably would have lobbied their governments to maintain it. This would have had an especially big impact in Britain, where the interests of the merchant classes were taken very seriously, and there was an active opposition party which could have theoretically rallied these sentiments. Perhaps this would have been enough to arrest the downward spiral towards war which we discussed last episode. Or perhaps not. But enough speculation. As we know, the way things worked out there was no significant countervailing force pulling against the rush to war. When we left off last time, Britain had seized all French shipping and issued a formal declaration of war. Bonaparte seems to have been caught off guard. He wasn't oblivious to this downward spiral towards war. In fact, he had written off the treaty long ago, but he thought he would have more time before the British acted. In retaliation, he ordered all enemy aliens in France arrested. Today, such measures are relatively common during wartime, but this had not been typical in 18th century conflicts. But, increasingly, war was an all-out contest between entire nations, 
rather than disputes between individual monarchs. Perhaps it's no surprise that Britain and France were pioneering new avenues to prosecute the war. Traditional military conflict, in which the armies of the two sides fight it out on the field to seize or defend territory, was off the table. The conditions which created peace had dissipated, but the conditions of before the treaty, which had forced the war into a stalemate, still held true. The British had no safe foothold on the continent from which to challenge the French. Even if they had somehow managed to land troops somewhere on the mainland, the British army was only around a third the size of the Republican army, and far less experienced. Worse, they would need to be reinforced and resupplied from the sea. Think of all the difficulties the Allies encountered during the Normandy landings in the Second World War, and that was with 20th century technology and all the manpower and industrial might of the United States and the Commonwealth. With Napoleonic-era technology and organization, and the British fighting more or less alone, it was simply not feasible. On the other hand, a French invasion of Britain looked only slightly more plausible. London is just 35 miles, or 56 kilometers, from the coast. If Napoleon could get an army across the English Channel, he wouldn't have to push very far to take the capital and with so much of British economy, infrastructure, and administration centered on London, continued resistance would be difficult. As Bonaparte himself said, quote, If we are masters of the English Channel for six hours, we are masters of the world. End quote. But gaining mastery over the Channel for six hours was easier said than done. The Royal Navy still far outclassed the French. Napoleon hoped to change that in the future, but until then, there was little the French could do but prepare and hope the day would come. So, unable to strike directly at their opponents, both sides looked to indirect methods. For the British, that meant stepping back into the shadowy world of conspiracy and assassination, and restarting their secret war against Napoleon. We discussed this secret war in great detail in episode 57, The Infernal Machine. During the last war, British help had played a big role in keeping the Royalist resistance movement viable in France. They sent money, weapons, and equipment to Catholic rebels in the Vendée, and provided shelter and assistance to Royalist émigrés as they attempted to stir up dissent back home. Most importantly for our story, they also engaged in the dirtier and perhaps more exciting side of espionage, funding and training what we would call secret agents, and organizing covert operations inside France. By far the most famous, or infamous, of these operatives was Georges Cadoudal, a tall, stocky nobleman and ex-guerrilla fighter who had been the mastermind behind the so-called Infernal Machine the wagon bombing on the Rue Saint-Niquez, which had nearly succeeded in assassinating Napoleon. This had all taken place a little over three years earlier, on Christmas Eve 1800, and we discussed it in detail back in episode 57. As soon as the war began, British intelligence, Georges Cadoudal, and the exiled French royal family began preparations for a spectacular operation inside Republican France. And I phrase it that way quite deliberately, 
because it seems the conspirators were working backwards, starting with the idea of mounting some spectacular operation, then filling in the details. Rather than making an honest assessment of their capabilities and the strengths of the enemy, and deciding on a course of action from there, they should have taken a moment to assess the viability of such a large, daring intelligence operation. For the last year, their networks inside France had been dormant, starved of any British help. Meanwhile, Napoleon had redoubled his efforts to end the royalist resistance with the carrot of reconciliation and the stick of counterinsurgency troops, military tribunals, and the secret police. He had achieved a great deal of success. Kaidudal and the British would not be able to simply pick up where they left off at the end of the last war. Nevertheless, the operation went ahead. Kaidudal and his agents successfully landed in France in August of 1803, only three months after hostilities restarted. Their preparations left a lot to be desired. By some accounts, they still had no concrete plan of action, just the vague idea that they would do something big. Something so big and so spectacular that it would spur defections from the Republican military and or spark a general royalist uprising. In short, they believed in the righteousness of their cause more than they believed in planning. Maybe that's romantic or morally admirable from some standpoint, but if you know your history, you know that's a common outlook in these types of situations. If there was an official motto of failed coup attempts, it would be, then the people and the army will inevitably rise up and join us. Hope is a wonderful thing, but it won't hide you from the secret police or protect you from the infernal columns of the Republican armies. And hope is not much of a political argument against a government that was generally popular and effective. Kadudal and his men did have one ace up their sleeve. An unlikely ally had joined the operation, Jean-Charles Pichegru. We've actually mentioned Pichegru briefly on the show, way back in episode 37. He was a former general in the Republican Army. At one point, he had been a fervent revolutionary, and one of the brightest rising stars in the French military, eventually rising to command the Army of the Rhine, the most important Republican army on the German front. He won major victories, and was awarded the honorary title Savior of the Fatherland. Sources differ as to exactly when and why Pichegru's life changed course. Depending on who you believe, he was either unjustly accused of treason and drummed out of the army, or he was forced to resign after his private royalist sympathies were discovered. So Pichegru was either embittered against the government and the revolution, or he was finally free to stop living a lie and to openly embrace conservatism. Whichever the case, he entered politics and quickly became a leader of the right-wing opposition. As we discussed in episode 37, for a while it seemed like the conservatives might have been on the verge of taking power at the ballot box. Then, the Army of Italy discovered intelligence, indicating Pichegru and his faction had been in secret talks with representatives of the former French royal family, treason. The army's commander, Napoleon Bonaparte, forwarded this information to his friends on the directory, who acted swiftly to bring in loyal troops, break up the opposition, and arrest its leaders. Thus, what remained of French democracy was either saved or destroyed, depending on your perspective. 
Pichigrew was sentenced to hard labor in the malarial swamps and jungles of Guiana in South America. The penal colonies of Guiana were so brutal and deadly that this sentence was often referred to as the dry guillotine. However, Pichigrew didn't stay in Guiana for long. He escaped, or probably more accurately, he sweet-talked the governor into letting him go. Eventually, he found his way to St. Petersburg. The Russians were always eager to hire talented foreign soldiers, particularly any officer who could give them insights into their latest opponent, the French Republican Army. And so, Pichigrew fought against his own country in the War of the Second Coalition. After the war, he went to London, where he met Kadutal and was persuaded to join the conspiracy. The idea that Republican soldiers and officers might defect to fight against the revolution for an ultra-Catholic reactionary nobleman like Kadudal or some relative of the former king was absurd, but it was at least a bit more plausible to imagine them rallying around a former comrade like Pichigrew, a man many of them had served under, who had once been hailed as the savior of the fatherland. Most significantly, one of Pichigrew's old protégés had risen very high in his absence. His former chief of staff, General Jean-Victor Moreau, had nearly lost his career trying to cover for Pichigrew, but had eventually taken over his old command, the Army of the Rhine, and led it with great success. We've discussed Moreau many times in past episodes. After Napoleon, he was probably the most famous and respected soldier in France. He was also well known to be dissatisfied with Napoleon's government. The last time we checked up on him, he was taking a stroll through the Tuileries Gardens during Easter Mass, 1802, as a silent form of protest against the Concordat. This would suggest his sympathies lay with the left, not the right. However, he had also recently gotten married to a glamorous, ambitious young socialite, who was said to have royalist leanings and to have the general wrapped around her little finger. With Pichigrew on board, something approaching a plan began to develop. Kadudal and his men would kidnap or kill Napoleon, then, in the ensuing chaos, Pichigrew would bring his contacts in the Republican army over to the royalist side. Once this was accomplished, they would bring in a Bourbon prince to serve as figurehead of a new royalist provisional government either to be crowned king himself or to serve as regent. But while Kadudal and Pichigrew conspired, Napoleon's agents were already on their tail. Nothing that went on inside France could long remain secret from Joseph Fouché, Napoleon's sinister, untrustworthy, but effective minister of police. By February 1804, Fouché had already captured one of the conspirators' British handlers, as well as Cadudal's personal valet. Napoleon ordered sweeping security measures. Paris was effectively locked down between sunset and sunrise every night. During the day, soldiers manned checkpoints at every entrance to the capital. All cargo was searched, all travelers had their papers checked. As I've mentioned before, Napoleon seems to have been genuinely rattled by Cadudal's previous assassination attempt. He faced death many times over the course of his life, but this incident held particular significance. Perhaps it was the idea that death might catch him unawares. Taking a calculated risk on the battlefield is one thing, 
but he had been in the middle of a nap on his way to the opera when the infernal machine went off. The thought of dying so suddenly, before his work was complete, seems to have created anxiety. Remember, Napoleon saw his own life as a great epic story. If fate decided the story would end prematurely on the battlefield, well, that was too bad. But at least it fit with the grand romantic narrative he was telling himself. Dying in Paris at a random moment in the story, at the hands of some cowardly assassin, is not a fitting end for a romantic hero. Kadudal was also a reminder of what a big target he had on his back. With almost the entire edifice of the French government built around him personally, opponents of the regime were naturally drawn to plot against him personally. After all, this was a dictatorship. Almost every other form of opposition politics was censored, discouraged, or outright illegal. If you lived in France in 1804 and were dissatisfied with the state of things and wanted to make a change in your government, your only real chance of having an impact was to take a shot at Napoleon. And more than that, the Infernal Machine had been an unprecedented act of barbarism, which violated the unwritten rules of war and politics, as they were generally understood at the time. Innocent people had been killed or injured without discrimination. Members of Napoleon's family were endangered, including women and children. It must have made Napoleon anxious to know that he was hunted by people who were willing to stoop to any act of depravity to see him destroyed. According to his secretary, by this time, Napoleon was suffering with, quote, anxiety, agitation, and painful insomnia, end quote. He took assassination threats very, very seriously, perhaps to his detriment. Fortunately for Bonaparte, the police seemed poised to stop Cardudal's latest conspiracy before it could get too far. But then, something strange happened. The investigation seems to have stalled completely for about a month. It's possible Fouché's men simply hit a snag after their early success, but I think it's more likely that this was a deliberate tactic. Once they had enough information to understand the plot and put all the key players under surveillance, there was little immediate danger. From an intelligence perspective, the smartest move was not to arrest them, but to keep them under close watch, to see who they approached for help, and who seemed eager to join. This is actually a pretty common tactic in authoritarian regimes. Fidel Castro supposedly allowed at least one plot against him to remain active at all times, under close surveillance, so it could serve as bait for potential traitors within his government. If this was deliberate, we don't know for sure how much Napoleon knew. He may have given his blessing to the entire plan. Or Fouché may have been acting entirely under his own initiative. That would not have been out of character. Napoleon's own correspondence from this period suggests he did not know, but that could have been a pretense. If this was a deliberate strategy, it worked. Fouché's men were able to observe Pichegru meeting in secret with his old protege, General Moreau. The second most famous commander in the Republic was caught red-handed meeting with a convicted traitor known to be in the paid service of a hostile foreign power. Ironically, the talks between Moreau and the conspirators had actually gone pretty poorly. Moreau was cordial enough and seemed receptive, but only to a point. It quickly became clear that Moreau was stringing them along. 
telling Pishigru and Kadudal just enough of what they wanted to hear to stay in their good graces, but refusing to commit to anything concrete. Moreau would have been more than happy to see Napoleon assassinated or deposed, and he may have even seen an opportunity to step into the First Consul's shoes himself, but he didn't want to stick his neck out. Supposedly, Kadudal remarked, quote, Usurper for usurper, I prefer Bonaparte to this Moreau. He has neither head nor heart. End quote. Perhaps he was right, because Moreau had actually not done a very good job of protecting himself. True, he had avoided committing fully to the conspiracy, but he was aware of it, and had been in personal contact with notorious fugitives. His failure to alert the authorities was quite damning, even if he wasn't technically a part of the plot. Now that Moreau was incriminated, it seems Fouché felt he had a big enough fish to wrap this whole operation up. Within the space of about two weeks in late February, the conspirators were all arrested. On February 16th, Napoleon wrote to a friend, quote, Guess what I've just done? I have ordered the arrest of Moreau. It will make a fine scandal, won't it? People won't fail to say that I am jealous of Moreau, that it's revenge, and a thousand silly things of the same kind. Me, jealous of Moreau. End quote. When he told Josephine, she apparently burst into tears immediately. She was friends with Moreau's wife, so some of the tears were probably for Mrs. Moreau, but Josephine told Napoleon she was crying for him for all the political problems he had just created for himself. Perhaps he should have listened to his wife. Once Moreau was in custody, he tried to play the whole thing off like it was no big deal. Yes, he'd been in contact with Pichigru and Kadudal, but so what? Didn't French citizens enjoy the right to freedom of association? Unfortunately for him, the police had a lot of evidence, taken from interrogations and seized documents, which proved he had extensive knowledge of the conspiracy, and had responded at least somewhat favorably to overtures to join. In the American legal system, we call that accessory. From a legal standpoint, Napoleon had Moreau dead to rights. However, the court of public opinion seemed less likely to convict. According to Napoleon's own secret police, the people of France greeted the news with silence. Moreau's arrest was very unpopular. And, perhaps even more ominously, there seems to have been widespread fear about expressing that discontent. Whatever the legal justification, Napoleon's arrest of Moreau was widely seen as petty score-settling with a rival general, not as a matter of national security. By now, Bonaparte had been ruler of France for over four years, but it seems that for some people at least, this was the first time they had really contemplated the realities of life in the dictatorship. Napoleon ultimately showed mercy to Moreau, perhaps due to this backlash against his arrest, or perhaps out of deference to his military record. The victor of the Battle of Hohenlinden was allowed to go into exile in the United States, rather than to prison. The police caught Jean-Charles Pichegru by surprise. He had no time to go for a weapon, but resisted bitterly with his fists until he was finally subdued and brought to the temple prison for interrogation. Just over a month later, Pichegru was found dead in his cell. At the time, this was widely suspected to have been murder, 
carried out under orders from Napoleon himself, or possibly from Minister Fouché. But in the years since, no evidence has emerged to support this theory. It is hard to see how Pichegru's death would have provided any benefit for Napoleon, beyond revenge. There is the intriguing possibility that some other powerful person ordered the murder. The most obvious motive would be to keep Pichegru silent about their own involvement in the conspiracy. However, this too remains nothing more than a theory. It is certainly possible that Pichegru simply preferred death to the ministrations of the secret police. He was a convicted traitor who had already escaped his sentence once. There could be little doubt as to how his story would end. Perhaps he decided it was better to face death on his own terms. Georges Cadudal went down much harder. He was able to reach his weapons in time. When the police came calling, he led them on a chase through the streets of Paris. In the running gun battle, one policeman was killed and several others wounded before Cadudal was finally subdued. Whatever you think of his cause or his actions, he certainly lived up to his reputation as an implacable warrior. Napoleon himself went to the prison to visit Cadudal. He was fascinated by this man, and actually praised some aspects of his character, even while he deplored his methods and detested his cause. Unfortunately, we can only imagine what a conversation this must have been. We know Napoleon offered Cadudal some kind of pardon, provided he renounced his past bad acts and switched sides. Napoleon was not the type to cast aside someone who could be useful, even someone who had come so close to killing him and driven him to such fury and fear. Perhaps Napoleon wanted to prove to the world that his politics of accommodation and national unity really did extend to every Frenchman, even those who had committed heinous acts against him personally. But as you might expect, Cadudal was not interested. He was a fanatic in the truest sense of the word, and fanatics do not switch sides, not even to save their own skins. Frankly, I think Cadudal left England with the intention of either achieving his goal or sacrificing his life in the attempt. Two months later, he got his wish. Georges Cadudal was taken from his cell to the place of execution. In deference to the heinousness of his crimes, he was to be hanged like a common criminal, rather than given a quick end under the guillotine. Nonetheless, Cadudal went to the scaffold unrepentant, with his head held high. He was just 33 years old, but since his early 20s, he had lived with the knowledge that this was a likely end to his story, and now it had finally come to pass. He was well prepared to play the role of martyr. Cadudal turned to the crowd and said, quote, now it's time to show the people of Paris how Christians, Royalists, and Bretons die. End quote. Defiant to the last. Two days after Cadudal's arrest, Napoleon addressed the Senate, and he too struck a defiant tone. Quote, Since the day I attained the chief magistracy, numerous plots have been formed to kill me. They are really conspiracies against the glory, liberty, and destiny of the French nation. Our citizens must allay their fears. My life will last as long as is necessary to the nation. End quote. The plot was over. In this first round of the renewed secret war between Britain and France, 
Napoleon had unquestionably come out on top. At least, that would be the story if events had ended here. They probably should have ended here. But history had other plans. Instead, we have a whole second act to get into, and things will only get stranger and more ambiguous. The incident I'm about to describe is perhaps the most controversial single event of Napoleon's entire career. Under the best of circumstances, it can be hard to get to the truth in these cloak-and-dagger espionage stories. The veil of state secrecy is sometimes difficult to pierce, even two centuries later. That's doubly true in this case, in which we don't have much to go on but the accounts of people who were all eager to shift blame on others and minimize their own guilt. As always, I'll do my best to sift through the various versions of the story and allow you to reach your own conclusions. Anyway, I think that's enough caveats. Suffice it to say, the events I'm about to relate are very controversial, and a lot of smart people will probably tell you I'm totally wrong. But here goes. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. With Pichagru, Kadudal, Moreau, and their agents all under arrest, there was only one remaining loose end. Once the plan was executed, the conspirators had hoped to bring in a member of the exiled royal family to serve as a figurehead for their movement. At least, police records showed that members of the conspiracy had said as much under interrogation. Whether or not that was actually true is another question, and we'll come back to it later. Anyway, the identity of this member of the royal family remained a mystery. The most obvious candidates were the brothers of the last king, Louis XVI. They were leading figures in the émigré counter-revolutionary movement, and royalists considered them to be number one and number two in line for the throne. However, Napoleon's intelligence experts did not believe it would be either one of the king's brothers. They lacked military experience, they were not terribly popular within France, and perhaps most importantly, this was a dangerous job. Whoever served as figurehead of this plot would be risking assassination or capture. These were aging men who had spent their lives at court. They were not suited for this sort of thing. Napoleon's agents already had their eyes on someone who fit the bill much better, Louis-Antoine de Bourbon-Condé, the Duke of Enghien. Enghien was a cousin to King Louis XVI and his brothers. On paper, he was not a very prominent member of the royal family, tenth in the line of succession, behind his father, his grandfather, and half a dozen uncles and cousins. But he had a much higher public profile than you might expect given his junior position in the royal hierarchy. To put it bluntly, he was one of the few members of the royal family who people actually liked. 
The Duke of Enghien was in the prime of life, 31 years old in early 1804. He was tall, thin, and considered quite handsome. Unlike many other members of the royal family, he was raised from an early age for a career in the military. This meant he'd led a slightly more varied and vigorous life than many of his peers, who grew up cloistered away in various palaces and estates, with little connection to the rest of the world, and little to occupy their time and energies but etiquette and petty court intrigue. Military service was practically required for men in the duke's family. His grandfather was the Prince of Condé, a title which Anguien stood to inherit once his grandfather and father died. I don't want to get bogged down in all the vagaries of noble etiquette and feudal laws of succession, but, suffice it to say, as close relatives of the king, who bore the family name of Bourbon, the House of Condé had been one of the leading families at court before the Revolution. On top of that, they were famous for their long and distinguished record of military service. Most notable in this long line of soldiers was Prince Louis de Bourbon-Condé, who had been a leading figure at the court of Louis XIV, and one of the Sun King's most competent and popular generals, known to history simply as the Grand Condé. Subsequent princes of Condé had worked very hard to fill his boots, and, unlike many of their aristocratic peers, had actually done a pretty good job of maintaining the legacy of their illustrious ancestors. While much of the French aristocracy sank into lethargy and decadence, the Condés were still the Condés, or at least that was their public image. You might compare them to the Kennedys, undeniably privileged and aristocratic, but still perceived by many as sincerely devoted to public service. People thought of the Condés as a throwback to a golden age, when the country was powerful and prosperous, and its ruling class was dynamic and effective. Even some revolutionaries still harbored warm feelings about the Condés. And with his youth, charisma, and military training, the Duke of Enghien seemed to embody what was best about his family, and by extension, the whole aristocracy. It was obvious to everyone, including Napoleon's spies, that the young Duke of Enghien would be an ideal figurehead for a royalist political movement. Enghien had been on the radar of the Republican secret police for quite some time. Not only was he a high-ranking aristocrat, he was a committed royalist and anti-revolutionary. During the War of the First Coalition, he had actually served in an émigré army in western Germany, raised and led by his grandfather. He also lived in the town of Ettenheim, today only about a half-hour drive from the French border, suspiciously close. As Republican agents investigated Enghien, they found their suspicions largely confirmed. After leaving his grandfather's army, Enghien had remained committed to the royalist cause. He was in contact with all sorts of shady characters from the counter-revolutionary underground, ranging from harmless cranks to people who were truly dangerous. The most dangerous was probably William Wickham, the de facto head of British intelligence on the continent. By 1804, Enghien was taking a regular salary from the British. And this wasn't just some show of support and goodwill. He was actually taking part in the day-to-day -day work of intelligence, serving as a conduit for information, communications, and funds. No one would have dared saying this to his face, but 
the young Duke had become an employee of British intelligence. I think it's easy to see why the Republicans might consider Enghien a threat. This was a widely popular, talented person with hardcore royalist convictions and a deep relationship with a hostile foreign power, who had set himself up right in France's backyard. This has never been conclusively proven, but circumstantial evidence suggests the Duke was making occasional clandestine visits across the border to France. According to some sources, there was an innocent explanation here. Supposedly, the Duke had a girlfriend who refused to leave France, so he bought a house right along the border and moved her in just opposite on the French side. Clandestine trips to France were more common than you might think for royalist émigrés. Back in the days before strict border controls and tamper-proof identification, it was relatively low risk to pay a quick visit to the mother country. People sometimes did it for totally innocent reasons, like visiting friends or even tourism. But people also sometimes did it because they were involved in something nefarious. So, what was going on at this house in Edenheim? Was the Duke simply a dilettante, trying to ease the boredom and frustration of exile by dabbling in espionage? Was he a minor cog in the British intelligence machine, trying to do his duty to the crown? Or was he something much grander, a kind of royalist mirror to Bonaparte, poised to rally the counter-revolution around his person, the way Napoleon had consolidated the revolutionary forces. After Cadudal and Pichegru landed in France, and paranoia about royalist plots began to build, Republican informants in Attenheim began to suggest it was the latter. According to these reports, Enghien's clandestine activities increased in scope and scale. They said a high-ranking British intelligence official, Colonel Smith, had become a frequent guest at the Duke's house and the two held secret meetings with Charles-François de Maurier, a former Republican general who had defected to the coalition. If there had been a list of most wanted royalists in Republican France, de Maurier would have been near the top. There were even reports that Enghien had gone to Paris and met with Cadudal and Pichegru. On March 10th, 1804, Napoleon held a meeting at the Tuileries Palace with his closest political advisors and most senior legal and intelligence experts to decide what to do about the Duke of Enghien. All of those assembled seemed to agree that the mysterious prince who Cadudal and Pichegru had planned to use as a figurehead for their renewed royalist rebellion had been conclusively identified as the Duke of Enghien that Enghien, Smith, de Maurier, and their clique in Ettenheim were a second branch of the same conspiracy, all following the same master plan devised in London. The debate was not over the accuracy of this analysis, but what to do about it. Because Ettenheim was in a foreign country, their options were limited. Operating within the law, there was not much they could do beyond lodging a formal protest with the ambassador of the Duchy of Baden and requesting extradition. This might have ultimately been successful, given Baden's fear of their powerful neighbor over the Rhine, but it would have been slow, and given the conspirators plenty of time to flee, or at the very least, destroy documents and get their stories straight. Someone, probably Foreign Minister Talleyrand, 
had an alternative proposal that was much more daring and likelier to succeed, and highly illegal. Under his plan, French troops would cross the Rhine in secret, attack the Duke of Enghien's residence, seize the Duke, de Maurier, the British Colonel, Smith, and any records or documents they could find, then bring them all back to France for a military tribunal. As you might imagine, the lawyers in the room were not crazy about this idea. International law was an almost purely theoretical concept at this point, and as we've seen in past episodes, the great powers habitually twisted it to their own ends. But there could be no question that abducting someone from a foreign country and subjecting them to harsh military justice was far beyond the pale. Not even the most creative, self-serving interpretation of international law could excuse this. From what we can tell, Second Consul Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès was the main voice speaking out against abducting the Duke, which makes sense. As you might remember, he was one of the architects of the Civil Code, and Napoleon's de facto chief legal advisor. It was his job to be the voice of the law within the Council of State. He argued that if the Duke really was making secret trips to France, it would be relatively easy to have Republican agents shadow him and pick him up the next time he crossed the border. This wasn't good enough for Napoleon, who responded, Am I a dog to be hounded down and killed in the street while my murderers are to be regarded as sacrosanct? I would have you know that I refuse to spare those who are sending out assassins against me. End quote. Napoleon was worked up. He couldn't resist tacking on a sarcastic quip. Quote, you have grown very stingy with Bourbon blood. End quote. Reminding Cambacérès that despite similar legal objections, he had voted for the execution of King Louis XVI back in 1792 as a member of parliament. Meanwhile, on the other side, Police Minister Fouché and Foreign Minister Talleyrand were urging Napoleon to act. Fouché warned that, quote, the air is full of daggers, end quote. It seems by this point, Napoleon's mind was basically made up. Rather than deliberating, he was actually arguing against his own advisers who opposed seizing the Duke. Quote, I shall return the terror which the Bourbons want to inspire in me. If I am going to have to pardon Moreau for his weakness and jealousy, I shall have the first of these princes who falls into my hands shot. I shall teach them what sort of man they are dealing with. End quote. You can probably guess which side won the debate. After the meeting, Napoleon dashed off a note to Berthier, his chief of staff. Quote, Please give orders to General Ordiner, whom I place at your disposal, to start tonight for Strasbourg. He is to proceed to Ettenheim, surround the town, and seize the Duke of Enghien, de Maurier, an English colonel, and any other persons in the party. End quote. General Michel Ordiner was a senior commander of the Consular Guard, Napoleon's personal military unit. He had been placed in command of several companies of the elite gendarmes, a special subdivision of the Consular Guard, which was responsible for Bonaparte's personal security. By this time, the Duke of Enghien knew that some kind of royalist conspiracy had been broken up in Paris. 
He had received warnings from multiple sources that there were Republican agents in and around Ettenheim asking questions about him. Some of those close to him had even suggested leaving the Rhineland and going somewhere safer. But the Duke did not listen. The elite gendarmes crossed the border after dark on the night of March 14th. The operation went off without a hitch. They arrived at the Duke's house totally undetected, and were able to enter and seize the occupants without a shot fired. However, the gendarmes found no trace of Dumouriez or the English colonel. To protect the secrecy of the operation, the Duke was referred to only by a code name, Monsieur Plessis. The gendarmes brought him to Strasbourg, then to the fortress of Vincennes, just outside Paris in Napoleon's time, but more or less in the middle of the city today. The Duke arrived at Vincennes on March 20th. Napoleon's instructions to the Commandant read, quote, A person whose name is to remain unknown to you is to be sent to the fort which you command. Place him in a vacant room, taking proper precautions against escape. The intention of the government is that everything related to him should be kept very secret, and that no questions should be addressed to him as to his identity or the reason for his arrest. End quote. Ironically, the Duke was not the first member of the House of Condé to be imprisoned at this very fortress for intrigues against the government. Another reminder that this supposed new era of the revolution was perhaps not so different from what had come before. By the time the Duke arrived, a military tribunal was being prepared to try him for treason. The verdict was not in doubt. Napoleon had already made up his mind to execute the Duke, but even if he hadn't, the gendarmes had discovered proof the Duke had received money from British intelligence, and a letter in which the Duke had actually pledged loyalty to the King of England and offered to bear arms against France once again. Hard evidence of treason by any standard. With the matter thus settled, Napoleon retired to his country estate at Malmaison, just outside Paris. When he arrived, he found Josephine distraught. She was convinced he was making a terrible mistake with this swift execution, just as she had been with the arrest of Moreau. Napoleon's older brother, Joseph, arrived a few hours later, and Josephine begged him to reason with his brother, or to at least convince him to not act so quickly. Joachim Murat, the flamboyant cavalry general who was one of Napoleon's oldest and closest friends, seems to have had misgivings as well. However, Napoleon had brought Talleyrand with him from Paris as a guest, and Talleyrand was still gung-ho, pushing hard for decisive action. The discussions must have been heated, but it seems the trio of Joseph, Josephine, and Murat were successful in planting a seed of doubt. Napoleon did not cancel the tribunal, but he sent a message to one of his most senior police officials, Pierre-François Réal, ordering Réal to personally go to the fortress and interview the Duke face-to-face. I think Napoleon had just come to an important realization. Essentially all the information he had about this entire case came to him via Fouché. There was a mountain of evidence— documents, notes from interrogations, surveillance reports, and accounts from agents in the field. But it had almost all been collected by Fouché's men, passed through the police bureaucracy, which was controlled by Fouché, and presented to Napoleon by Fouché. 
Really, Napoleon had little idea what was actually going on here beyond what Fouché told him. And who had been pushing hardest for action? Talleyrand, a man with a similar background to Fouché, and a similar personal agenda. The two men had been known to work together in the past. Under the circumstances, I think Napoleon was very wise to seek independent confirmation of this information, even if it was at the very last minute. However, the tribunal was still scheduled to go ahead that evening. They did not know about Réal and this interview he was supposed to conduct with the Duke. And Réal never arrived. The official story is that he was already in bed when Napoleon's messenger arrived, and wasn't aware of his orders until the next morning, when it was already too late. This explanation is accepted by many historians, but at the time, it was suspected by many, including Napoleon, that this delay may have been deliberate. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The tribunal did not wait for Réal. At around 11 p.m., the duke was taken from his cell to the great hall of the fortress. He was met by a panel of five colonels, drawn from the various regiments garrisoned around Paris. They would be his judges. The arrest of the Duke of Enghien had been highly illegal, but the trial itself was technically not. Under emergency legislation passed after the Infernal Machine Plot, assassination attempts against the First Consul were officially within the jurisdiction of the military courts. The trial was quite short, even by the standards of a drumhead court-martial. The judges asked the defendant point-blank if he had plotted with England, against the Republic and the First Consul, and borne arms against France. The Duke responded that he had, quote, My birth and my opinions will always make me the enemy of your government. I had requested from England a commission in her army, and received as an answer that she could not grant it, but that I should remain on the Rhine, where I would shortly have a part to play. End quote. It's notable that he did not address the specific charge that he had been plotting with Cadudal and Pichegru, and while the gendarmes had discovered extensive evidence that he had conspired with Britain, they had found nothing to indicate his involvement with this particular plot. It is possible that Cadudal's plot was the part to play the Duke referred to in his testimony, but we don't know for sure. No one seems to have taken much notice of this little detail. The court's verdict was already a foregone conclusion, and even if it hadn't been, 
bearing arms against the Republic, and plotting with the enemy were capital offenses in their own right. The Duke admitted to serving in his grandfather's counter-revolutionary army, and the court had letters in the Duke's own hand begging the King of England for a commission. They had him dead to rights. The Duke asked for an audience with Napoleon, but this was denied. According to legend, the gendarmes had already dug a grave just outside the fortress before the trial even began. This is likely a myth, but it gets at the truth that this so-called trial was nothing more than a perfunctory gesture, a little theater to put a legalistic gloss on an illegal act. At around three in the morning, the duke was taken from his cell and brought outside the fortress, to a chosen site at the base of the walls, where a squad of elite gendarmes and an officer holding a blindfold were waiting. It was obvious what was coming. Death sentences for treason were final. There was no opportunity for appeal. Under the law, executions were to be carried out within 24 hours of a verdict. The duke's time was up. Supposedly, his last words were, quote, Well then, I must die at the hands of Frenchmen, end quote. If true, it is an odd sentiment for a man who had spent most of his adult life fighting against France. The charges and sentence were read, then they blindfolded the duke, put him up against the wall, and the order came, fire. The Duke of Enghien was dead, aged just 31. The next morning, René Savary, the officer who carried out the execution, arrived at Malmaison to make his report to Bonaparte in person. Napoleon's secretary described the scene, quote, on hearing that the Duke of Enghien had asked to see him, the first consul, without asking for those details of which he was usually so greedy, interrupted Savary to ask him what had become of Réal, and to know if he had not gone to Vincennes. Hearing that he had not gone there, Napoleon remained silent, walking up and down his library with his hands crossed behind his back until the moment when Mr. Réal was announced. After listening to the latter's explanation, and having exchanged a few words with him, he fell back into his reverie, and then, without expressing a word of either approval or blame, he took off his hat and said, It is well, leaving Mr. Rayal surprised, and to some extent disturbed by his manner. End quote. It seems that by this point, Napoleon was aware that this affair had perhaps not gone as well as he'd hoped. Fortunately for those around him, he was too busy thinking about what to do next to spend too much time taking out his frustration on anyone else. Apparently, well-wishers showed up at Malmaison all day to congratulate the First Consul on successfully breaking up the British plot and knocking off such a high-profile royalist. If you're a dictator, it is not always the best sign when your sycophants feel the need to reassure you that you've done a good job. Josephine seemed to be the only one who grasped the seriousness of the situation. She was practically in shock. When people asked her what she thought of this business, she would only give one stock response. Quote, I am a woman, you know, and I confess that I could cry. End quote. Napoleon had actually anticipated a positive public response. He had 150,000 copies of the verdict printed and distributed around Paris. 
The Bourbons were unpopular, and royalist intriguers were generally loathed as puppets of a foreign power who killed innocent people. But for once, Napoleon's political instincts had failed him. He had miscalculated badly. Once the verdict was published, people could see for themselves that there was basically no evidence connecting the Duke with the conspiracy of Cadudal and Pichegru. To this day, there has never been any evidence of correspondence between anyone in the Pichegru-Cadudal clique and anyone in the Duke's circle at Ettenheim. They were both connected to British intelligence, so it's possible that both groups were simply pawns on the same chessboard. But it seems like the British regarded these as separate operations. No one of any note was arrested alongside the Duke. General de Maurier had never been to Ettenheim. He was apparently mixed up with a minor royalist commander named General Tumeri, and the sinister English Colonel Smith had turned out to be a young German lieutenant named Schmidt. There were reams of correspondence between the Duke and London, but very little of any consequence. There was certainly no concrete plan of action that would have warranted the type of drastic action Napoleon had taken. Given this evidence, most people seem to have concluded that this was nothing more than a naked act of tyranny by Napoleon. That he wanted to kill the Duke, and so invented a pretext and had it done. We know the truth is far murkier and more complicated. But given what the public knew, it's hard to blame them for reaching that conclusion. At first glance, that's exactly what it looked like. In the eyes of the public, the Duke's blood was on Napoleon's hands. It didn't help that the Duke was a sympathetic figure. Yes, he was an intransigent royalist who had committed treason for the cause. But he was young and handsome, and came from one of the few popular families of the high nobility. Worse. He had been the only living son of an only living son, unless his elderly father had another child, which was very unlikely. The House of Condé would soon die out. Maybe it's superficial and sentimental to take such things into consideration, but they have an impact on public perception. It's easy to see how this could turn into an appealing, tragic narrative. A promising young man, marked for death due to the circumstances of his birth, martyred by the cold, jealous ambition of a tyrant. Napoleon's own secret police reported, quote, Paris has never been so utterly silent, end quote. Even many of Bonaparte's supporters seem to have been too stunned to defend him. Some of the facts seem to have been lost in this widespread public revulsion. The Duke actually had been a traitor. This was not even seriously in dispute. There was hard evidence proving it, and he had admitted it. The act of seizing him from Attenheim was unquestionably illegal. But once the Duke arrived in France, he was treated more or less the same as any other captured royalist rebel, albeit with a great deal more secrecy and attention. True, his trial had been little more than a formality and its justice was swift and harsh. But this was the ugly, routine reality of fighting the royalist insurgency. Over the course of years, thousands of captured Frenchmen had received similar treatment, and the public had always turned a blind eye, or even approved. 
Maybe Napoleon could have gotten away with this if the gendarmes had discovered something in the Duke's house, which might theoretically have justified such drastic action. But this particular gamble had not paid off. It's hard to overstate what a propaganda disaster the execution was for Napoleon's regime, especially for its reputation abroad and among the aristocracy. Upon seizing power, Napoleon had made the argument common to many authoritarians that, yes, he would rule with a heavy hand, but he would only act within the law and be guided by his innate personal sense of justice. Thus, only the guilty would have anything to fear. Up until now, he had done a relatively good job of maintaining that image. His regime did violate people's rights, but who were those people? Mostly, they were the types of people who killed innocents and disrupted public order, die-hard royalist rebels and recalcitrant Jacobins, and the emigres who took money from France's enemies. After years of bloody civil conflict, no one much cared how Napoleon dealt with these people, only that they were dealt with. As we've seen, Napoleon was able to establish a dictatorship with no serious resistance and his reputation as a sincere, unbiased public servant had remained more or less intact. He told the people of France he acted for the common interest, not his own personal aggrandizement, and that had been largely accepted by wide swaths of the French public, even as he marginalized the opposition, centralized power, and ensconced himself in the luxurious trappings of monarchy. The execution of the Duke and the arrest of Moreau seemed to have been wake-up calls for some of Napoleon's admirers. It wasn't just that they disapproved of these specific acts. It suddenly cast the whole regime, and Bonaparte himself, in a different light. The untrammeled power of the new French state was terrifying to behold. But far too few people had noticed or cared until it destroyed a famous well-bred person, and by now it was far, far too late for anyone to do anything about it. In past episodes, we've looked at the Catholic writer François-René de Chateaubriand as a kind of bellwether for moderate conservative opinion. In case you've forgotten about him, he was a nobleman of Napoleon's generation who had opposed the revolution and gone into exile in England. But he had returned to France and been won over by Napoleon's outreach to the right. He had gone so far as to write pro-Napoleon propaganda, and had personally advised the First Consul during his negotiations with the Pope in 1801. Chateaubriand had taken to Bonapartism with the zeal of a convert, but after the execution of the Duke, he turned away just as quickly. In his words, quote, the execution hit me like a thunderclap, end quote. He soon left France. In exile, he began work on an essay in which he compared Bonaparte to the Roman Emperor Nero, who was notoriously cruel and arbitrary. Not everyone went on quite so dramatic a journey. But it seems this was a common story. After the execution, Napoleon's supporters were re-examining their views. Many ultimately concluded that following Bonaparte was still their best option, but the illusion that it was possible to build some kind of liberal, law-abiding, personal dictatorship was shattered. 
It's sometimes said that this incident was the beginning of a change in Napoleon's character, from the authoritarian but still idealistic First Consul to the severe, tyrannical Emperor. Looking over the broad sweep of Napoleon's life, I don't see that. This dark side of his character was present all along. He executed unarmed prisoners on several occasions during his expedition to Egypt. He dealt very harshly with counter-revolutionary rebels in Italy. At the very beginning of his career, when he was a junior lieutenant in the Corsican National Guard, his draconian behavior had provoked the Easter Riot. Now that he had absolute power, there was no law, regulation, or individual to restrain these impulses when they emerged. Napoleon had very strict standards of behavior, and when he believed people acted contrary to those standards, he sometimes reacted with rage. This tendency has always been a part of his character, but we will see it more as the story continues. Supposedly, Talleyrand would later say of the execution, quote, It was worse than a crime, it was a mistake. End quote. Now, Talleyrand believed all governments and all politicians would inevitably have to get their hands dirty, but to do so in a way that weakened rather than strengthened one's position was unforgivable. A bit ironic coming from one of the chief architects of this whole fiasco, but an interesting perspective. I think that this quotation gets to the heart of an important question. Was the execution of the Duke simply a mistake? an overreaction born of fear and faulty intelligence? Or was something more sinister going on? In short, who was to blame for this disaster? That's a question of interpretation, and as I've mentioned earlier in the episode, this is one of the most contentious subjects in Napoleon's entire career, so there are lots of competing interpretations. For the last segment of this episode, I'd like to delve into those different interpretations and see how well they fit with what we know. Before we go any further, I think it's worth saying that whatever interpretation you prefer, a great deal of the blame must rest with Napoleon. He was the first consul, the man with near-absolute power, and he gave the order. As Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. It has been argued that Napoleon had actually planned on giving the Duke a last-minute pardon. This way, he could put a scare into the royalists, while avoiding the negative publicity from an execution, and keep the duke in his back pocket as a potential future bargaining chip. Under this version of events, the timeline somehow got confused, or other parties intervened, and the duke was tragically executed before Napoleon could make his grand gesture. It's not a totally implausible scenario. Napoleon did love making grand gestures, and it fits with his recent agenda of national reconciliation and outreach to the right. My only question is, if this was the plan all along, why did he keep his own council of state in the dark? Why give a monologue about spilling Bourbon blood and teaching the royalists a lesson? These were closed, highly confidential proceedings. There would be little reason to keep up pretenses. I have a hard time believing that Bonaparte was seriously considering this idea, but never even once discussed it with his closest advisors. I think it's even less plausible when you look at Napoleon's mental state during this period. 
People were not open about their feelings and emotions during this era, but as I've mentioned earlier, our sources suggest that he was genuinely rattled by the assassination plot, paranoid and indignant that his enemies were subjecting him to such infamous treatment. He was being hunted down like an animal, to borrow Napoleon's own phrase, instead of being treated with the respect he was due as a head of state. It seems he saw the execution of the Duke as a shot across the bow, to warn his enemies that he would answer this type of treatment in kind, that if they did not respect him as a legitimate head of state, and broke the rules of war to oppose him, then he was willing to do the same to defend himself. As Napoleon himself put it, quote, I shall teach them what sort of man they are dealing with, end quote. To me, the interesting question is not whether or not Napoleon was responsible for the execution, but his degree of responsibility. Was this simply an error in judgment, as Talleyrand suggested? Or was he led to make this decision by others, in service of their own agendas? Poor information was clearly at the root of the problem. The intelligence Napoleon received about the Duke of Enghien and his household was deeply flawed. The broad strokes weren't far off. The Duke really was a royalist diehard, working for British intelligence. But almost everything they thought they knew beyond that was either totally incorrect or badly misinterpreted. We can't rule out the possibility that this was simply incompetence. Intelligence work during this period was almost unbelievably rudimentary and amateurish by modern standards. Agents were generally selected for their moral flexibility and shady reputations, rather than talent or trustworthiness. Espionage was still viewed as vaguely shameful and ungentlemanly, treated more like a government-sponsored criminal enterprise than a legitimate tool of statecraft. I find it easy to envision scenarios in which the assorted ne'er-do-wells who worked for Republican intelligence deliberately inflated the importance of the Duke. Perhaps the climate of fear and paranoia around the assassination plot made them feel pressured to produce results. Or perhaps they saw it as an opportunity to manufacture a plot and then get the credit for breaking it up. And perhaps they simply didn't know what they were doing. Under this interpretation, these intelligence failures stoked Napoleon's fear and anger, leading to a rash decision, with tragic results. That narrative seems plausible. There's no real evidence to disprove it. However, looking at the intelligence raises another interesting possibility. What if this was not a matter of faulty information, but of deliberate misinformation? aimed at deliberately leading Napoleon to a particular conclusion. I hope I've made the possible suspects for such a deception obvious, Fouché and Talleyrand. This isn't just wild speculation on my part. In the aftermath of the execution, it was widely suspected that the two men may have played some role in orchestrating the affair. Some of this may have been simply because they had such sinister reputations. People assumed they must have played a role in something so malevolent. But there is some compelling circumstantial evidence. If we look at this like a crime, as a question of means, motive, and opportunity, the means and opportunity are quite obvious. 
Fouché was minister of police, all the way up the chain from the agents in the field who gathered the intelligence, to the bureaucrats who recorded and analyzed it, to the most senior heads of departments. All of them answered to Fouché. Many of them were his men, groomed for their positions by Fouché personally, and loyal to him. It would be almost trivially easy for Fouché to influence the intelligence as it passed through his department. For a man of his power and fearsome reputation, I think it would probably be enough for him to simply let it be known that he desired a certain conclusion, and his men would know to deliver that conclusion whatever the true facts may have been. If Fouché tailored the intelligence to fit his desired conclusions, or even outright falsified it, it would then be a simple matter to present this intelligence to Napoleon alongside Talleyrand's plan to kidnap the Duke, thus stoking Napoleon's outrage and paranoia enough to get him to accept. This version of events involves a lot of conjecture, but it does fit with what we know. I actually think it's possible Fouché and Talleyrand had a hand in orchestrating this entire conspiracy. They could have used double agents and informants to lure Pichegru and Cadudal to France, enabling them to arrest some of Britain's best agents, and ferret out royalist sympathizers in France, and get rid of General Moreau, and serve their own personal interests all at once. If this was intentional, you really have to admire the deviousness. One interesting detail is that we can say with relative certainty that Talleyrand lied about his role in the execution, and tried to cover it up after the fact. He claimed to have been a voice of moderation and reason, trying to talk Bonaparte down from the idea of kidnapping and executing the Duke. This conflicts with basically every other account of these events, and not only that, Talleyrand destroyed almost all of his correspondence from this period, presumably to cover the lie. Unfortunately for him, he wasn't thorough enough, and we actually do have a letter which directly contradicts his story. That doesn't necessarily prove anything. After the backlash to the execution, Basically everyone involved tried to downplay their involvement, all except Napoleon, who really couldn't. And Talleyrand lied about everything. It was practically a reflex. There could be any number of reasons he chose this particular lie. But it is interesting, and perhaps suggestive. This just leaves the question of motive. Why would Fouché and Talleyrand go to such great lengths to lead their own chief into this unwise course of action, which proved so damaging to the government they served? Well, let me put it this way. Fouché and Talleyrand didn't survive a decade of revolution and political upheaval by putting the truth and the greater good above their own self-preservation. These men were survivors, and I think, in early 1804, they were concerned for their personal safety, and looking for a little insurance. We've spent a lot of time talking about Napoleon's outreach to the political right. As soon as he seized power, Bonaparte launched a project of national reconciliation between revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries. He offered an olive branch to even the most hardcore royalist emigres and intransigent conservative Catholics. 
As we've discussed at length in past episodes, this project wasn't quite as warm and friendly as Napoleon liked to pretend, but it did achieve some real important success. Thousands of emigres really did return home. Thousands of right-wing Catholic rebels laid down their arms and returned to society. Some moderate royalists were even brought into the government, and the French Republic finally reached a compromise with the Vatican. We've also discussed how these developments made some Republicans uneasy, even angry. I can certainly understand how it might be painful and infuriating to see your government retreat from principles that you'd spent your whole adult life fighting and suffering for, and seeing your friends die for. But for some of these Republican malcontents, I think there was a factor at play here beyond ideology, or the understandable personal bitterness a question of survival. On a certain level, the revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries were almost like rival gangs with a decade of bad blood between them. When you look at the conflict this way, all the ambiguities and shades of gray disappear. The only principle that really matters is to kill the other guys before they kill you. Fouché and Talleyrand knew that to the conservative right, they were two of the most despised men in the world, that their hands were stained with the blood of thousands of royalists, as well as innocents. In particular, both men had played a role in the death of the king. To conservatives of this era, regicide was an almost unspeakably evil crime, far beyond even a typical murder. Almost like killing your own family, but worse, because it was compounded by blasphemy for striking down the divinely appointed leader, and terrorism because it did damage to the social and political fabric and created instability. The aristocracy viewed itself as a big family, and to a certain extent, it actually was. Many nobles had sworn eternal revenge against the men who killed the head of their family and committed the sin of regicide. The last great European monarch to be executed by commoners was Charles I of England during the English Civil War. The British aristocracy had hounded his killers to the ends of the earth, literally all the way across the Atlantic and into the backwoods of New England. Those who died before they could be punished were dug up and had their corpses put on trial and hanged. This is the type of treatment Fouché and Talleyrand knew they could expect if the French aristocracy ever regained its ascendancy. Both men were quite accustomed to the luxury and comfort afforded to them by their positions. It's hard to imagine them hiding out in a cave in the Connecticut woods like the last of Charles I's executioners. This is part of the reason Fouché and Talleyrand, and men like them, clung so stubbornly to power. They knew their enemies would come for them, given half the chance. Everyone who was connected with the death of the king, and to a lesser extent, the executions of other nobles during the revolution, felt this target on their back. So, as they watched Napoleon cozying up to the right and talking about putting the divisiveness of the revolution in the past, they were not only concerned on an ideological level, they were concerned for their personal safety. What if Napoleon's new friends wanted revenge? 
Napoleon's own record on these matters is relatively clean. During the ugliest days of the revolution, he had only been a junior officer. He wasn't really implicated in anything significant, simply because he wasn't important enough to have been consulted. He had weaseled his way out of participating in the executions of royalists in Toulon, and refused to serve in the Vendée fighting against Catholic rebels, because he didn't want to fight his fellow Frenchmen. This relatively clean record is a big reason so many royalists and conservatives were willing to give him a chance. But that certainly didn't sit well with people who knew they had signed their names to countless death warrants and execution lists. How far would Bonaparte go to achieve his goal of national unity? What if his new conservative friends demanded a sacrifice in return? What if they offered to rally behind Bonaparte in return for revenge against the men who were the worst criminals on the planet in the minds of many conservatives? That scenario might seem a little far-fetched, but it surely reminded Fouché, Talleyrand, and others in their circle that their checkered pasts were a vulnerability. This dynamic plays out all the time in dictatorships. This was actually one of the secrets of Joseph Stalin's success. He was always very careful to implicate as many people as possible in his abuses. Think of it this way. If you're in the ruling circle of an authoritarian government, and you've done something bad, and everyone around you was involved, you all have a shared interest in covering it up, and shielding the guilty from any consequences. On the other hand, if you've done something bad, and you were the only one involved, well, then you're just that creep who killed all those people. In the cutthroat politics of authoritarian regimes, you will have to either learn to live with the potential consequences hanging over your head, or protect yourself by sullying those around you. And I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. People at the time were quite aware of this phenomenon. When Joachim Murat left Napoleon's office the day of the Duke's execution, he was heard to remark, quote, Bonaparte is trying to bespatter my coat, but he will not succeed. End quote. Murat was careful to delegate all the tasks related to this ugly deed to his subordinates. He did not want his coat bespattered with Bourbon blood. Ironically, Napoleon seems to have been concerned about implicating others in the crime he was about to commit, but failed to properly consider the possibility that others might do the same to him. If this theory is true, and Fouché and Talleyrand really were engaged in a conspiracy to spatter blood on Napoleon's coat, it worked. As we've discussed, the execution was greeted with almost universal disgust, particularly by the aristocracy. Napoleon had tried to sell himself as a new kind of respectable Republican, open to collaboration with the right, and untainted by the violence of the revolution's darkest days. The execution of the Duke had put a big, ugly crack in that image that the European nobility couldn't ignore. Over a decade after the execution of King Louis, Napoleon was successfully initiated into the blood feud between the Bourbons and the revolutionaries. He was implicated. Fouché and Talleyrand were safe. Napoleon would continue preaching national unity and reconciliation, but after the death of the Duke, that message rang hollow for many conservatives. 
They had seen all they needed to see. Napoleon was no better than the men who had preceded him. Just another bloodthirsty, power-hungry revolutionary. It certainly didn't help that the only real Republican who was arrested in this conspiracy, General Moreau, was allowed to go into comfortable exile in America, while all of the leading royalist plotters were executed. The window in which some kind of real permanent end to the rift between right and left might have been possible was now definitively closed. Napoleon's bid to transcend the social rift caused by the revolution was over. Fouché came out of the scandal stronger. Napoleon didn't trust him, but Napoleon had never trusted him, so that was no great loss. Over the course of his reign, Napoleon would work to chip away at Fouché's power, but ironically, he was now so paranoid of plots and assassination attempts that he was convinced he really needed Fouché's expertise to keep him safe. Besides, Fouché was so dangerous and so deeply entrenched, it would be impossible to remove him without a bloody fight. Talleyrand seems to have borne the brunt of Napoleon's ire. The two men would continue to work together for years, but this incident seems to have marked a shift in their relationship, which had never been terribly warm, even when they were close allies. I don't normally quote from modern historians, but I think this line from Adam Zamoyski's book, Napoleon, A Life, captures the slow decline in their relationship perfectly. Quote, While Bonaparte henceforth treated Talleyrand with mounting disgust and hauteur, at the same time fearing him, Talleyrand grew more resentfully servile while secretly undermining his master. End quote. However, Napoleon seems to have saved the lion's share of the blame for himself. He always defended his actions in public, although he used a whole slew of different arguments and rationales to do so. In the weeks and months after the execution, he complained that he felt the public looked at him differently, although there was no outward sign of this supposed disapproval. It seems this was merely Bonaparte's guilty conscience. Or perhaps he was thinking about those police reports, which suggested average people roundly disapproved. For the rest of his life, Napoleon continued to feel the need to explain this incident, almost as if he hoped to finally get some kind of absolution from whoever was listening. And this continued right up until his dying day, and I mean that literally. Napoleon's last will and testament includes an article explaining the execution of the duke. Quote, I caused the Duke of Enghien to be arrested and tried, because that step was essential to the safety, interest, and honor of the French people. Under similar circumstances, I would act in the same way. End quote. Perhaps that's true, but this constant insistence that he did the right thing suggests some underlying insecurity. But all of Napoleon's bluster and rationalizations fell on deaf ears. Public perception of his regime had changed. There was no way around it. Now that people had seen Napoleon abuse his power, what had once looked like reasonable national security measures suddenly seemed oppressive and tyrannical to many. Bonaparte's defenders were quick to point out the hypocrisy of the great powers. 
The British employed many of the same draconian measures in their struggle against Irish nationalist rebels, and to maintain control over their far-flung colonial empire. It wasn't long ago that a group of Russian military officers beat their own emperor to death, and none of them were punished, even though the identities of the perpetrators were an open secret. But accusations of hypocrisy are pretty weak tea in politics, and in the face of such a massive scandal, nobody paid these arguments much mind. Before we close out, there is one more possible interpretation of these events I'd like to present to you, one that is much less flattering to our protagonist. There is a school of thought that argues the death of the Duke was a calculated act of brutality, not by Fouché or Talleyrand, but by Napoleon himself. At first glance, it's hard to imagine why Napoleon would have deliberately done something so drastic and inflammatory, but there is a logic to this argument. By this time, Napoleon knew he was in trouble with the left. He had spent much of his first four years in power on his project of reconciliation with the right. Many Republicans found all these concessions to conservatives profoundly disappointing. As we've discussed, some former revolutionary leaders might have even begun to fear for their lives, worrying that Napoleon might give them up as some ultimate gesture of national unity. As we've already discussed at length, some of these old revolutionaries were in a position to be very dangerous if they turned on Napoleon. Under this theory, the only real way for Bonaparte to ensure their continued support would be to convince them that he would never give them up to their enemies. And the only way to do that would be to join the blood feud himself, kill a Bourbon. Then, Fouché, Talleyrand, and other men like him could rest easy, knowing that Bonaparte would never be able to side with the Bourbons against the Regicides. And so, to shore up his own political alliances, Napoleon decided to join the small, dangerous club of men who had dared to spill the blood of the royal family. And so, he tracked down the most vulnerable, most accessible member of the king's family, and targeted him for death. The conspiracy of Kadudal and Pichegru provided the perfect pretext. This story doesn't fit with some of the accounts I've presented in this episode. The general impression seems to be that events had unfolded outside of Napoleon's control, not as he had envisioned them. He seemed surprised by the news of the Duke's execution, and may have actually had second thoughts at the last moment. However, it's always possible those accounts were deliberate attempts to exonerate Napoleon, or that he was play-acting surprise, or that the writers simply misremembered. There is one piece of circumstantial evidence that I think makes this theory worth mentioning. The timing. If Napoleon was going to do something as reckless as abducting the Duke of Enghien from a foreign country and executing him after a hasty military tribunal, he must have had a very good reason. Bonaparte was known for taking risks, but he did so in a calculated way, only when he was reasonably sure of success and the potential consequences were justified by a huge potential payoff. As we've discussed, the Republican opposition to the Napoleonic regime was quite weak, with no real popular support beyond a smattering of aging true believers. 
Why wouldn't Napoleon simply continue to ignore these people, as he had done for most of his four years in office? The idea of killing the Duke as some kind of grisly human sacrifice to the remaining revolutionaries only really makes sense if Napoleon thought he needed to get back into the left's good graces for some reason. It may be significant that in the spring of 1804, around the time of the execution, Napoleon was planning a major new initiative, which he knew would be highly controversial, especially on the left perhaps even more inflammatory than the execution of the Duke. He would have had a very strong incentive to shore up his left flank before proceeding down this road. That road is, of course, the one that led to Notre Dame and Napoleon's coronation as Emperor of the French. Less than two months after the death of the Duke, the Senate approved a plan to abolish the office of First Consul and replace it with an emperor. Whether you believe it or not, you have to admit it's a pretty juicy theory that to return monarchy to France, Napoleon had to prove to the Republicans that he was still a revolutionary at heart by spilling the blood of a Bourbon, like some kind of dark ritual. I'm skeptical. Perhaps it's a bit too juicy to be true. But it's certainly not impossible that these types of political considerations were working in the back of Napoleon's mind and influencing his decisions, perhaps even beyond his own awareness. It could be that this was all totally unspoken, and Napoleon tacitly understood that acquiescing to the execution of the Duke was the price of his imperial crown. So, to sum up, I'm not sure what I think. Over 200 years later, I doubt the real truth of this incident will ever be known. Like so many stories that involve spies, criminals, and national security, the more you look at it, the more you find loose ends and potential areas for speculation. I do believe Fouché and Talleyrand were pulling at least some of the strings. These were unprincipled men with an almost limitless capacity for intrigue. They didn't get where they were by playing it straight. Then again, when you're a powerful person with a reputation for conspiracy, people tend to see your hand at work everywhere, even when you're not doing anything. Survivors like Fouché and Talleyrand often operate by reacting to events, not orchestrating them. So who knows? If tomorrow some document came to light which proved beyond any doubt that this whole affair had been a setup by Fouché and Talleyrand, I wouldn't be surprised. On the other hand, if some evidence emerged which totally exonerated them and proved the whole thing was nothing more than a series of mistakes and coincidences, I wouldn't be overly shocked by that either. There is only one concrete lesson or conclusion I'm able to draw from all this. There is no such thing as a clean dictatorship. However well-intentioned the First Consul and his government may have been, however sincere they may have been about only using their authoritarian powers against the nation's enemies, it was only a matter of time until some mistake or some unscrupulous person with a hidden agenda led to an abuse of those powers that was too drastic for the public to ignore. Napoleon's dream of a humane, progressive dictatorship had always been a chimera, 
It's a credit to his political skills that he was able to paper over that fact so successfully for the first four years of his rule. But that was over now. The whole world had gotten a good, long glimpse at the dark side of Napoleonic France. Anyway, I think that's enough for one episode. Before we go, I'll give a shout-out to Tom Holmberg, who wrote a fantastic summary of the conspiracy and execution for the Napoleon series back in 2005, which was a huge help in writing this. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>